If you want to take your Bibles and turn to the book of James, it's in the New Testament. Probably uh, about three quarters of the way through, you'll find the book of James. I suppose uh, a lot of you have, with digital photography, the ability to kind of share all sorts of pictures, and you probably have folders of them, and you, all you have to do is kind of pull out your computer or your laptop, and you can start going through pictures, and you can look at things, you can spend as much time as you want them. Some of you probably have them as screensavers, and they just kind of continually rotate. Maybe they're on your desk, and that explains why you're not getting anything done, right? You're just watching the pictures. Oh, there, there, there's my family. Oh, I remember to go in there. I noticed that my uh, two boys had the laptop out, and they were, they were going through pictures of their birthdays. Uh, we, you know, at birthday time, uh, we always bring out the camera and take some pictures, and they were looking at some of their past birthdays, and they were laughing they were making fun of themselves, like, look how small we are, look at that. And they were, just, they were just having so much fun, kind of noticing that they have fully grown up now. You know what I'm saying? They're 7 and 12. And, they're, and they were just kind of looking at all the progress that they had made. And they were like, oh, can you believe I did that? And I was into this. And so they were just having a lot of fun. And I'll tell you, uh, they enjoy seeing themselves grow up. My wife and I really do, okay? I mean, we're like any parent. We want our kids to grow and mature. And I mean, it's great to see their progress. But what happens if there wasn't progress? I mean, what if you still had to feed them? OK, I mean, that's fun for the what first year after year two, though, you're really wanting them to kind of get the spoon action going. And what if they what if they never learned how to like pick up their toys, which now that I think about it, we're actually still working on that one. OK, uh, I mean, yeah, we're always like you got to pick up your toys. Their toys are just bigger and they're like all over the neighborhood now. OK, so we're working on that, but we want them to learn some responsibility. Uh, what if they never learn how to talk or to walk or to dress themselves? What if they had no ability to discern danger? For instance, you know, you're shooting hoops. The ball goes rolling down your driveway into the street and they just keep running into the street without looking at you want your kids to grow and mature and be able to recognize danger, exercise discernment. I mean, that is their high hopes for our children, is that one day they're going to be fully functional adults. They're going to mature physically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually. Let me tell you about God. God is in the process of bringing people into his kingdom. It's a process that he actually, Jesus refers to as being born again, that you actually have a second birth. It is a, not a physical birth, but a spiritual birth that takes place when you come to realize not only your sinfulness, but the beauty and the greatness and the awe of the Savior, Jesus Christ. You realize that is why he came. He came to pay the penalty for our sin that we who believe in him can truly have a relationship, an authentic relationship with the living God. And when you come to a place where you're turning from your sin and trusting Christ, that is what Jesus refers to as being born again, to be born anew. You are a brand new adopted child of God. And God fully intends that you are going to mature and grow up where you'll become a fully functional, reproducing adult spiritually. And that is his plan. And that is why the Bible is given to us. It is given to us for our instruction so that we're going to grow and mature, especially in the book that we're going to be looking at in these next few months. And that is the book of James. This book is meant to address the issue of how do we truly mature in our relationship with Christ? You see, not everyone who grows old grows up. Let me just tell you about a sad reality in modern day Christendom, especially in the United States. 
We have people who've been Christians for 10, 20, 30 or more years, but spiritually they've, they've kind of plateaued at about the one-year level. They, they haven't really grown to grasp the mission of Christ. They're not willing to serve. There is the idea of sacrifice and suffering. They want to hear nothing of it. In fact, a lot of modern-day Christianity clamors after teaching that wants to tell you, hey, it's all about niceness, goodness. God doesn't want anything bad to happen to you. And so we settle for these little platitudes, and people never really seem to mature about an inch deep. And that may even actually describe Christianity today. We're a mile wide. We're around the globe. We're about an inch deep. You need to know that God never intended that. He has given us his spirit, his son, and his scriptures so that we will truly mature and grow up and be fully functional, functional, reproducing, mature adults in Christ. And I just want you to know, for me personally, this is my, my driving desire. I want to continue to grow and mature and experience God's peace, his perspective. There, there is a, a dependence upon him, a walking in the spirit, to know what it means to abide in Christ, to experience his presence. That's what I desire in my life. And you know what? I think that's what we all do. Any person who truly knows Christ, you want to know more of him. That is the reality. Once you taste the goodness of the Lord, you want to continue to grow in him. And that is why God specifically has given us the book of James. And God has handpicked a guy to lead us on this spiritual journey to maturity. His name is James, and he is a spiritual leader of great significance in the New Testament. He's often overlooked because we we focus oftentimes on Paul and John and Peter. James doesn't get a lot of press. And in fact, when I if I were to ask you, name some of the great spiritual leaders in the New Testament, probably few of you would say James. And yet he is actually one of the significant ones. He is he's got a guy. He's a guy who has a defining character. Now, there's three James that are given in the New Testament. Let me just kind of clarify who they are. First of all, there was James, the son of Zebedee. He was one of the apostles of Christ. You might remember in the book of Acts, he is the first apostle to actually die for the faith. Okay, A.D. 44, Herod starts ramping up the persecution. He kills James. He sees that it makes the Jews happy. That's, after all, one of his big goals. You want the people in your kingdom happy? He killed James. This begins the persecution that starts about A.D. 44. Then there was another follower of Christ, another one of the apostles. His name was also James. He was the son of Alphaeus. And now this was bad. Please never do this with anybody. But they actually called him James, or he became known as James the Less. James the Less. And, what, and, the, and the basis of that is he was actually of shorter stature than James the son of Zebedee. And so, I mean, can you imagine introductions? Here we have, this is James. And here's James the Less, okay? And, you know, I mean, that was just like, ugh, I hate this, you know? I mean, James the Less, would you explain? It's just my height, it's not my spiritual maturity, it's not my intellect, it's just, you know, it's just James the Less, okay? So, then there's this third James. This is the James that authored this book. This is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He is the natural-born son of Joseph and Mary. He spent all of his growing up years with Jesus, who also grew up in the home of, of Mary and Joseph. I mean, think about it. For 20 to 30 years, he was always with Jesus. He saw him grow, develop physically in stature. He saw him 
increase in wisdom. He saw his interactions. He saw his mother and and Joseph, who is who is really not his real father, but had adopted him because of the miraculous conception that took place. He was actually born not of a relationship between a man and a wife because there was a miraculous conception where the power of the Holy Spirit came over Mary. And yet Joseph raised him as his own son. He was kind of legally tied to Joseph. And James saw all of this. He saw all the interactions. And yet, despite all they saw, and, and it must have been somewhat challenging to grow up with a brother who actually never sinned, okay? He, he was in that kind of relationship. He saw, he certainly heard from his parents, because remember, Mary pondered all these things and she spoke of them, of, of just the miraculous nature of this, this one's birth. But when Jesus then breaks into his public ministry about 30 years old, his brothers, they actually do not believe that he's the Messiah. They, they don't know what it was. It was like, how could this be? I mean, we're from the same family. It's just no way. Uh, you can, it's pretty interesting. If you go through the Gospels, like in Mark chapter 3, it says that his own people or his kinsmen, probably referring to his family, actually tried to restrain Jesus from going out into this public ministry. And then in John chapter 7, his brothers kind of almost mock and ridicule Jesus. Say, hey, if you want to be publicly known, you go out and do all your stuff in public, okay? And it says in John 7 verse 5 that even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, James is always, when, all the, when the children of Joseph and Mary are listed, and that's happened several times in the Gospels, James is always the first one. He was probably the first natural-born son of Joseph and Mary, meaning he was the second oldest in the family. He would have been one of the ones most likely to say, we simply do not believe you're the one. And yet, a few years after this incident, James actually is the leader of the Church of Jerusalem the leader of these people that have placed their faith in Christ, who now gather together, who are about the worship of God, who are about his gospel. And, and he actually has, he's not, just, he's not just in the church, he is the key leader. He becomes the chief pastor. He's like the lead pastor. Remember there was this big argument as to what to do with the Gentiles who were coming in, and they were, they were like, what, are, what needs to take place? And what, in order to resolve this issue, they brought it to the Church of Jerusalem, and James is the moderator, the spokesman, and he is the announcer of the final decision. In the book of Galatians, Paul refers to James as one of the pillars of the church. And you're like, wait a second. What happened? How do you go from unbelief, no, Jesus is not the Messiah, to a lead pastor in a church of Jerusalem, which, by the way, was a very sizable church? What happened? The answer, the reality of the risen Savior is the defining moment of this man's character. Let me read to you some verses that are very familiar. It's the encapsulation of the gospel that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. By the way, if you're here today and you're like, what is the deal with Jesus? Why did he come? He came to die for our sins, to pay the penalty for our wrongdoing, our offenses toward God, our lack of holiness, our self-centeredness. That is why he came. He came to die for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he was buried. 
He was actually dead. They crucified him. They put him in a tomb. And then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. God had forecasted, prophesied that this was going to happen, that his son, the Messiah, would actually rise again. And he did. And he appeared, it says in verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, that means Peter, and to the twelve. And he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom at that time were remaining, although some had actually fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for death. Jesus makes a makes like a mass appearance where over 500 people see him alive in his resurrected state because Christianity is no different than any other religion. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, the reason that Christianity is the absolute one true faith is because God has substantiated to the world that Jesus Christ is his son and he's done so through his resurrection. He is drawing all men to himself. You know, all other religions are trying to work and earn favor to God. In fact, that actually even seeps into Christianity. People feel like, I've got to do these things. I've got to make God happy. I'm trying to make him pleased with me. But the reality is no works can ever please God. God, the, the beauty of Christianity is that God sends his son to pay for our sins. And all that needs to be accomplished has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And to authenticate to the world that he can offer you and I genuine spiritual life, he is raised from the grave. He is risen. And he is calling all people to believe in him, to trust in him. And when you do, you receive forgiveness of sins, eternal and abundant and actual spiritual life. He appeared to over 500 others. And this is what I want you to see. In verse 7, you may have missed this before. Then he appeared to James. His half brother, the one who perhaps led the others and saying, no, you're not the Messiah. He, he makes an appearance to him and says, look, come see experience and know that I am the living Messiah. And then he went on to appear to all the apostles. You see, can you imagine what that reunion must have looked like? Jesus, whom he had seen killed, put in a tomb. Raised, he had heard the testimonies that people are saying, Jesus is alive, he's alive. And Jesus appears to James and his life is changed by the resurrection. That is the definition of a Christian. You and I, when we come to put our faith in the risen son of God, our lives are changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we come to put our faith in him, our life starts to look differently. We have a new M.O. in life. It's not about me. It's all about the Savior. And that is what was true for James. Shortly after that, remember, after, right after the ascension, Jesus actually ascends to the Father. He says, I am coming back. I want you to be ready, and I want you to be about my work of making disciples among all the nations. Do you know where you find James? You find him gathered in the upper room with Mary and the apostles and a group of others. They are doing as Jesus said. He says, I want you to wait until the power of the Holy Spirit comes. And when he comes, he is going to turn the world upside down through what he's going to do through you. Well, that's where you find James. And so when James comes to know Christ, he finds that his whole life has changed. He has a new definition to character. Character for him is all about being a Christ-centered man. He also has a driving concern. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. James, 
He is a bond servant of God. He has completely assigned himself to the service of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. James has a driving concern. And by the way, every authentic spiritual leader has the same compelling desire. You know what it is? It is to see every person made complete in Christ. Spiritual leaders aren't just like, how can we keep people happy? How can we entertain them? How can we just kind of keep them laughing? How can we just kind of keep them moving from square to square and into this box and to do this thing? That's not what spiritual leaders do. You know what a spiritual leader's driving compassion concern is? He wants to see every person made full and complete and mature in Christ. That your position in Christ, which is that you are absolutely his, he's accomplished all the work, is that becomes a reality in your life that there's a practical manifestation of holy, godly, righteous living in your life. And that's what he wants. He wants to see every person made complete in Christ, to exercise discernment, to know the joy of the Lord, to experience growth and health, to understand prayer, to be able to be dependent upon him. That's what he's after. And he is really God's man. God's spiritual leader, a spiritual leader that is serving God, they take the initiative. They lead courageously. And under the power of the Holy Spirit, God moves James to write this book to address critical issues in the church. James is after spiritual development. And let me just talk to you about what it means to mature and grow in your relationship with Christ. It is not just to gain intellectual knowledge. Really, spiritual development is, is really full-orbed. It's a whole life approach. It begins, first of all, with your head, what you know. Okay, And so a, a, a big part of growing up and maturing in your relationship with Christ and maturing spiritually is that you are growing in what you know. That, that includes like knowledge, wisdom, your understanding, your comprehension of the truth that God has revealed in his word. Okay, If there is no intake of God's word, whether that be through your own personal reading, uh, coming, listening to messages, being involved in Bible studies, it is impossible for you to grow spiritually because God's scripture is the food which actually fosters spiritual development. But then it's not just with the head. And oftentimes that's where Christianity gets left off. We've got people that are highly educated and know a lot about the Bible, but there's no practical reality of them living out the truth of the word. And so really it starts with the head, but it then moves right onto the heart, which is like your convictions, your focuses on your character, your beliefs, your attitudes, your values. God not only wants you to know truth about him, he wants this truth to own you, that you believe it. You're willing to die for it. You bleed. You have convictions that are rooted in your relationship with Christ, because from your convictions will come the third aspect to maturity, your conduct. Let me just tell you something that's just very obvious. What you really believe is what you do. What you really believe about God, about life, about sin, about hell, about Christ, about the gospel, about making disciples is reflected on how you live your life. And so as you grow in your understanding and knowledge, your convictions grow and mature. And as your convictions grow and mature, you know what happens? Your behavior starts changing and all of it is rooted in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's after. Every spiritual leader wants people to grow and mature in their relationship with Christ. Their head, 
their heart with their hands. Now, there's one other thing that you need to know about spiritual leadership and why James is such a good leader to learn from. Spiritual leaders are growing and developing competency. They are personally experiencing growth and maturity in Christ. And because they themselves are growing, they are putting themselves in a position where they can help others grow. You cannot take someone or lead someone to a place that you've never been. Okay? How many of you would like to go and try to scale a mountain with someone that's like, well, I've I've actually never done it. I've I've seen some movies about this, and I read a book about it. And I saw some folks at Baylor at the Slick, and they were climbing this rock wall. It doesn't look that hard. I'm sure I'll be able to get you to the top. No, you're like, no, I don't think so. I'm going to have to pass right there. If you want to scale a mountain, you want to go with someone that's been there before and is scaling mountains and knows what they're doing. If you want spiritual maturity, you want to go with someone who knows what it looks like, who's experiencing, growing in that. And that's what we find with James. He is a growing spiritual leader. He's aware of the dangers. He speaks the truth in love. He knows that at times speaking this truth is going to be difficult. He knows of the hazards. He knows of the problems. Now, James has actually written the book, this book, right about 40, 80, 44, 49, somewhere right in there. And it is the first New Testament book that we have. Now, notice how James refers to himself. He refers to himself as a bondservant of God. Now, oftentimes when we read like the New Testament letters, we might just skip right over the introduction, because we're like, well, we're going to get to the good stuff. Let me tell you, the introduction sets up the entire book. And it actually tells you not only who the individual is, but how he sees himself in life. James sees himself as a slave, okay? Bondservant, you're like, oh, bondservant, don't use that very often. You could, you could translate this a slave. Someone who has completely assigned their rights as an individual to another, James is one who is completely submitted and yielded to Jesus Christ. And now you think like, oh, man, to consider yourself a slave of Christ, that sounds pretty difficult, may even sound like drudgery. But that is not so. In the Hebrew mind, they actually prided themselves to be considered a servant of God. Some of the key leaders of Israel were called servants of the Lord or servants of Yahweh. Moses, David, Elijah, all of these were considered servants of God. And this is a high and holy calling. James, he says, I am a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, speaking of his deity, Jesus, speaking of his humanity, his human name, Jesus, which, by the way, means the Lord saves or Yahweh saves and Christ speaking of his role as Messiah. To put the two together, a bondservant of God and Lord Jesus Christ is to put God the Father and Christ on equal footing. And that is the truth that is taught in the scripture. There is, God is three in one. There is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he puts the Father and the Son on equal playing, on, on, a, on an equal plane. And that's what you see right at the very beginning. James is the kind of spiritual leader that you and I, we want to learn from. I'll just tell you some reasons why I'm drawn to this guy. One, he's humble. Notice how he introduced himself. He introduced himself as a servant of Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I, James, the Lord's half-brother, or I, James, the great leader of the Church of Jerusalem, which by far was the largest church 
in the entire Roman Empire. It was the first church. He's not like that. Great spiritual leaders are not in it for themselves. They are in it for the glory of God, the honoring of Christ, and the development of people. He is is a guy who doesn't try to draw attention to himself. He's not trying to pull rank. He is obviously so humbled and he's so, so, so humble and so well known. All he has to do is say his name, James. You know, people that are humble are approachable, they're teachable, and they're knowledgeable because they willingly put themselves in positions where they can learn from Christ and from his people. Let me give you another reason why I'm so drawn to James and this book. James, he was a man who rang true. He was what we could call the real deal. One very early church historian described James as, quote, everyone from the Lord's time till our own has called him the righteous one. They referred to him as the one who lives as you ought to live. He's the real deal. He's not one of these guys who maybe just espouses nice doctrine and nice ways of living, but he himself is a wretched wreck and doesn't follow it. It's almost like kind of a game. He teaches things that he himself doesn't believe. Not for James. It's like he understood what Jesus said. A man speaks from that which fills his heart. He lived the life and then he just spoke from his experiences and what he was learning. He's the real deal. You'll notice if you've read the book of James that he talks a lot about prayer. And there's a reason for that. Um, James apparently had a reputation, according to church tradition, of a man of significant prayer. In fact, it was commented that his knees were as hard as camel knees because of just continual falling on his knees and prayer. That's the kind of guy I want mentoring me. I want someone who knows vitality in their relationship with the Lord, who loves him, who's in walking with him, prays and understands the power of God's presence in his life. Let me give you one other reason why I'm drawn to James, and I think that he's going to have a significant influence through this book in our church. He is willing to suffer. He's willing to suffer for what he believed. He understood that there's no ministry without misery. There's no proclamation without pain. Remember what Jesus said? Let me remind you some words that Jesus said that sent a lot of people away. Jesus said this, He said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you really want Jesus as the Lord of your life? If you do, you come and you follow him on his terms, not yours. If you say, well, yeah, I want to follow this Lord, and I certainly am very interested in this idea of being spared from hell, but I, I kind of want to do life on my own. Jesus says, uh-uh. Take up your cross. Die to yourself. And you come, and you follow me. James understood that. Spiritual leaders come to a point where they realize, Lord, it's not about me. It's all about you. Whatever you have, whether you give or you take away, I I'm following you. I have considered myself dead to all my own little worldly desires. And I simply want to follow you. Now, James led the church in a very difficult time. I mean, you think like, whoa, you got 2,000, 3,000 people and there's just all these people coming to your church. Things must be great. You should probably just be able to kind of hide out in your house, preach some nice messages and go home. 
On the contrary, when you have people that are new to Christ, they come with baggage and issues and lots of confusion. And that was certainly the case in Jerusalem. You have these folks that were Jewish. They placed their faith in Christ, but they're like, I have lived with the law and I'm always trying to do these things. That created great amounts of confusion in the church. And when you enter Gentiles, whom the Jews actually despised into the church, to lead in that kind of of church situation requires an uncommon leader. That's what we've got in James. James was also there when Stephen, the very first guy to ever die for the faith, was martyred. This took place about A.D. 35. And then shortly after that event, you remember how the great persecutor of the church, Saul, he becomes a Christian and he actually makes entrance in the church. James is the leader in that time. And let me just tell you one other reason why I am so drawn to this guy. He is not only willing to suffer. He's willing to die for his faith in Christ. Tradition tells us that in AD 62, James was martyred. And what apparently took place, the Jews were just furious with this man who courageously led and followed himself, helped people grow, was just absolutely fearless in proclaiming the gospel. He was so devoted to his ministry of discipleship and helping people grow and mature and understanding the gospel of God's grace that you could never earn favor with God. The Jews were furious with him. People were being drawn to Christ, and they saw him as the key culprit, and so they decided, that's it, we're going to put an end to him. So apparently what they did is they hauled him up to the temple, and they threw him off the temple mount down on the ground with the idea of killing him. But somehow, he just, he amazingly survived. He's injured. He's down on the ground. They see that he's still writhing about. He's alive. And James makes the statement that he heard from Jesus. He said, I beseech thee, Lord God and Father. He says, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And with that, they took rocks and clubs. And they beat him and stoned him to death. And he dies uttering the words of Jesus. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. This is a kind of man who can lead us to maturity. Because he himself is growing in that direction and was helping others do the same. That's why he wrote this book, friends. James, a bondservant of God of the Lord Jesus to the twelve tribes. That was a common reference to the the Jewish people. And he's writing to actual Jewish Christians who are dispersed abroad. See, what happened is with the with the persecution, probably starting a little bit with Stephen, but certainly when Herod Agrippa takes uh, um, James, the apostle, and kills him with that, then Jews, Christian Jews start moving out throughout the kingdom. You see, with the persecution of the church comes the spreading of Christianity And so you have these Jewish Christians that are moving out throughout the empire. Now, let me just tell you how difficult that is. First of all, you're leaving your hometown. You're leaving all your relations, all your business connections. If you are a Jew, most of Rome is Gentile, and they don't like you. They hate you, okay? They don't get you. They don't understand why you act this way, why you behave. You dress differently. They certainly don't understand your God, and so this is what they do. It makes life difficult to even conduct business, to, to raise a family. But if you are a Christian person from Jewish background, you're a Christian Jew, guess what? The Jews hate you because they hate Christ. 
So that means that not only the Gentiles rejecting you, but your people, your heritage, the Jewish people reject you. And all you've got are fellow Christians and Christ. He's writing to these people who are dispersed abroad. He says, greetings. And so he writes this book. He writes this book, the book of James. And it's let me just tell you the theme. You can remember it in two words. Maturity matters. Maturity matters. God is fully intent on that. In fact, in this book, several times he uses the word perfect, teleos. And the idea doesn't mean that you are sinlessly perfect, like you never commit any sin. The idea is that you are an adult. You're mature. You are full grown. You are balanced. And this is, friends, I think, the greatest need, not only in our church, but in every church. I've been a pastor for about 20 years now. I think the single greatest need in churches are that people have a mature, deep, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. They actually know what they believe and they know why they believe it. They are involved in his ministry. They are willing to sacrifice and to suffer. They are willing to give of themselves and to experience joy. And that is why he writes this book. He is really to address the greatest need in all of our lives, and that is maturity in Christ. And so let me just tell you just a very simple outline of this book. The outline of the book of James is real simple. Chapter 1 gives you the mindset of maturing, a maturing faith in Christ. That's what chapter 1 is about. He's establishing there is a particular mindset of people who are truly growing in Christ. Second, he says, there are, the second part of this book, are there are major obstacles. Chapters 2 all the way through chapter 5, verse 6, address the major obstacles to a maturing faith. By the way, if you do not know them and you do not know how to address them, your spiritual life most likely has been stunted, if not halted. Because these obstacles are that significant. If you don't understand them, you can't recognize them, and you don't know how to respond to them, you're probably going to be stopped in your tracks. It may explain why you have just hit a particular level. And maybe it explains why a lot of folks are kind of into complacent Christianity because they hit one of these barriers, one of these obstacles. They didn't know how to go through it. They didn't understand it. And they just kind of get waylaid. That leads us to the third aspect of this book. And that is he gives us at the end of chapter five, beginning in verse seven through the end of the book, the means of developing a maturing faith in Christ. And so what we're going to do starting next week We're going to start diving in to this book. We're going to experience together what it means to mature in Christ. And let me just kind of to whet your appetite, tell you that this is how James functions. He's not probably your most varnished writer, but he is a guy who truly loves his people. Oftentimes he refers to beloved brethren or he's referring, you and I, we're into this together, or beloved brethren. He is going to immediately address the issue. Uh, let me ask you, how many of you like to go to the dentist, by the way? Just curious, total random question. Anybody? The, we got the dentist. Okay, good. Okay, I'm glad the dentist likes to see himself. But all right, nobody really likes to go to the dentist, uh, you know. I mean, it's nice, but we know it's necessary. But let me just, you know, when you go to the dentist, let's say you have a need, okay? Like you have a massive toothache, Right. And you're calling to this. Hi, I'd like to schedule an appointment like immediately. So I come over now and you remember your mouth in pain. When you go to the dentist, what what do you want? What do you expect? 
Do you want the dentist to go, oh, so good to see you. Here, you here, I want you to have a seat. We have this really nice recliner. I want to show you all the functions. Look, you can go back and forth. And no, no. And you, you have this pain, right? What do, you, what do you want the dentist to do? Come on. You want him to address your pain issues. You don't want to hear small talk. You don't want to hear about his relatives. You don't want to hear about his last cruise. What you want to have, I say, I got, I got this tooth and it's killing me. I can't eat and my head's shaking. I need help and I need it right now. You don't want your dentist to go, Okay, let me see. Ooh, that looks really bad. You know, I had a bad toothache once. You know, I didn't floss. And, and he goes on to another story. And, and then he says, well, you know what? I'll tell you what. It's been so good to see you. I feel real bad for you that your tooth hurts like that. You know what? I'll tell you what. Let's set up an appointment next week. You come back. All right? And so, what? Okay, you're done. You're done. You take that little bib thing off here. Yeah, I know it's in pain. Yeah, you come back next week. We're going to take another serious look at that, okay? And there you go. And go up there and make sure you pay the lady up front, the, the smiling lady. Yeah, she's got a little flower on. Pay her, right? And you've been such a good patient today. Make sure you get a little, little treasure out of the treasure chest, all right? And we'll see you tomorrow. Well, next week. How many of you would like to go to a dentist like that? Would you? No. That would be like the last time you'd go to that dentist. Guys, James is like a good dentist. He doesn't waste any time. In fact, in verse 2, he, he addresses one of the major issues facing the church then and today. And that is, how in the world and why, how in the world do we face trials and why are we in them? If Jesus is God and he's Lord of the universe... He's the master of all creation. Why is it that his people are suffering and going through all these hardships and facing persecution and difficulties? Why and how do we go through it? And if you don't know the answer to that question of why and you cannot have any game plan of how you go through it, you're probably going to be in a very difficult situation. And so immediately he begins to address that issue and he's going to teach them this critical lesson. And we'll see it next week. The journey to maturity comes from growing through trials. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to find out how do you truly mature as you grow through trials. So I'll tell you what. Are you ready for this book? It is power packed. If you would give yourself to this book, I think God is going to use it to not only change, but transform your life. And I I talked to one guy today already. He said, me and my wife, we're actually reading this book over and over And I want to lay out the challenge to you. Will you give yourself to God and this book? Why don't you read this multiple times? Let this truth sink in and let's see God transform us from the inside out and bring great glory to himself and through our relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for this amazing, powerful book. And we've just touched upon it. We've sought to gain real insight as to the author and how you've used him and his experiences and this book to shape, change, and influence our lives. And so, Father, I ask that you would find in us a heart that is completely yielded to you. For the person who is here today who has never put their faith and trust in your son, but realizes perhaps now for the very first time, this is why Jesus came, to give me life and life in abundance. Would they pray with me and say, Lord, you know my frailty and my weaknesses. 
You know my sin and what I have done and what I have failed to do. And I turn from my sin and I trust your son today. And I experience grace because my faith is no longer in myself. It's in you and in the Savior. And Lord, for all of us, would you use your word to prompt greater growth in our relationship with Christ, greater dependence, greater joy, a great sense of obeying you in this life. Would you fill us with the joy that it comes from knowing Jesus and would we learn the lessons of this book that help it make a reality in our life. So we'd ask all this, Lord, for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.